Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, with James Daner today. James, how you doing? Good. I'm excited for one of our chats with Ben. I can go roundtable with Ben all day long. It's kind of a dangerous road to go down. James is talking about Ben Miller, who is the CEO of Funrise, who has been on the show a couple times already and is honestly just like one of the most knowledgeable people about the economy in general but Mm -hmm. he really knows a ton about the commercial real estate banking system he knows a lot about different ways to make money in different climates you know like he's one of these people who manages an enormous portfolio like he's got to keep making moves even during this type of climate and so we have a great conversation with him about what is going on in the economy in general and he gives some pretty specific predictions and advice about timing and when you should be buying when you shouldn't so if you are interested in the commercial real estate space at all you're definitely going to want to listen to this episode seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery join june parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.
Ben Miller, welcome back to On The Market. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me. We have a lot of questions for you. You tend to be one of the most knowledgeable people we can bring on with regards to banking and debt and real estate strategy in general. And we had a great episode with you. I think it came out back in January. Uh, we called it the great deleveraging. It's a term you coined, um, talking about the banking uh, situation and some of the implications for investors. And uh, before we get onto some of our new questions for you, uh, could you just summarize sort of the concept of the great deleveraging quickly for our audience? Okay. Well, so there's two words in it, great and deleveraging. So let's just explain deleveraging. <laughs> I hope they know what great means. <laughs> it's self-explanatory. So during the zero interest rate environment policy for the previous 15 years, most organizations and individuals normalized to super low rates. So you might be borrowing at 3%, even briefly at 2%. And when you borrow at low rates, usually it means you can borrow more money, right? Because if if your interest payments are only 3% on a million dollars, right? So it's $30,000 a year. So when interest rates doubled or tripled, it meant that borrowers were over-levered. They have too much leverage because they, they interest rates are so much higher, and so they have to delever or reduce the amount of leverage. And because it's so broad, there's so many borrowers in, in the situation, it's it's a great phenomenon, great deleveraging. And, and what are the broad implications of deleveraging on such a scale. <laughs> I think I started talking about this back in October and you we talked about it together in in uh, January is that it's it's so fundamental that everyone is affected. It's like the pandemic. And what are the consequences of the pandemic? Well, where do you start? So, especially in the United States, which is such a highly levered society, it affects you even if you don't realize it, it kind of reminds me of Silicon Valley Bank failure. I got involved in that. I can tell you that story, which is kind of an interesting story, because that's one of those things where there was no one in tech who wasn't impacted by it, even if you didn't bank with Silicon Valley Bank. And so what, like, and just on the broadest scale, though, the, the implications for investors, right? Like, is that, I, I remember you saying, basically, you were concerned that people are going to try and deleverage uh, and there might not be enough money. There might not be enough debt available to people to actually restructure their loans. Or what are your main concerns or, or sort of? Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I get it. So the essence of it is you have a recession. That's the natural consequences of it. And you have a financial crisis of some kind. And those two phenomena that feed on each other. So- uh, that's what I forecast, you know, whatever it was, seven, eight, nine months ago. And, and it's and it's playing out, right? We're, we're seeing tons of bank failures. We'll see more. We'll see more other kinds of failures. That'll cause a recession, which will cause more failures. And then we'll go from, you know, a transition period where people wondered if it was going to go down to a full downturn. And then we'll uh, we'll be at the bottom. That's a, a, a great place to be if you are an investor. Um so you don't have to see it as a negative as long as you're, you've are you maintained some liquidity, some reserves for that moment. So I, I want to kind of backtrack for a second. You said that you were at, you you had uh, you got involved in the SBB uh, kind of unwanted. Yeah, we got to hear that. <laughs> I got to take a step back here. What, what did that look like? And then, you know, I think what we're all kind of wondering is we're seeing 
uh, you know, that bank fail, like you said, it affected everybody. That's a huge statement. And then we're seeing things like First Republic and some other, you know, uh, Silvergate. These other banks are starting to also have issues. You know, A, what what did you see when you went and got involved in that? And then what what do you think the impact for us as investors, you know, real estate or or whatever is is going to be in the next six to 12 months? Because as these banks are starting to have issues, sometimes the impacts don't hit for six, 12 months down down the stream. What are you guys seeing and what are you doing to kind of work around that right now? Yeah, it's such a funny thing, especially if you haven't been through a few of these before, is that when the you see bad news in the headlines and it doesn't affect you right away, people then start to assume it won't affect you. Because if you went through, I went through 01 and then I went through 08, is there's such a lag. You don't, you don't appreciate it looking back in history, how much of a lag there was in, in 08, right? I mean, things started getting bad in 06 and wasn't until, you know, early 08 when things were basically, I mean, essentially some of these banks were dead man walking and it wasn't even clear to the market until like, uh, until September, October. And so I think that's the same thing happening again, that there's, there's this lag effect. And then, the reason there's a lag is that everybody's fighting it, right? No one just capitulates and they fight it by, you know, entrepreneuring, by selling assets, by raising money, by sort of closing their eyes and kicking the can, hoping it gets better. And so, so that's what's definitely happening today. It's happening with all sorts of institutions everywhere. The thing about why it's the great deleveraging is that, you know, when you borrow two times more than you should have, or two times more than you could today, it's not a problem until your loan comes due. And don't, everybody's loans don't come due overnight, right? They come due one by one. And each time they come due, everybody tries to work out some way to kick the can. And the bank doesn't want to deal with it. So they try to kick the can too. Everybody's trying to kick the can. But the thing of, that's, that's why there's this lag effect. But there's a wall. I mean, there's, you can't kick the can forever. Like that's, and I think this really interesting, like the seeds of, of um, I think the saying is in in every success are sowed the seeds of its own destruction. And so last time the solution to the crisis was extend and pretend. Everybody who held on in 08 and 09 and 10 ended up actually doing a lot better than if they dealt with the problem. So the lesson learned with everybody was don't deal with the problem, extend, pretend, put your head in the ground and sort of hold on. And actually everybody did great. And so everybody's assuming that's going to work again this time, and it won't work this time uh, for lots of reasons. So there's, it's going to be, a, a, I mean, it's going to be a very kind of rich experience for everybody. I mean, it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's going to be worse. I mean, like 20, 2021, right? 2021, when you look back on it, it was so overinflated, so crazy. Prices got crazy. And I'm like, you know, that can happen the other way too, on the way down. Like that feeling of like, you're just looking at, the, at things, you're like, this is crazy and it keeps falling. It's so bad. How could this be? It doesn't make any sense. And you're like, yes, that's that kind of experience. Oh, and that is brutal. I mean, it's that negative sentiment that seeps into everything. So something like that's coming. I think it's coming September, October-ish. It's coming this year. It's like, it's it's really imminent. Ben, what do you see that is so different this time? You said like extend and uh, pretend and extend worked last time. What makes this round different? It's just a different problem. So the problem is over leverage. There's two ways you can deal with over leverage, right? Two positive ways and one negative way. Uh, one is you grow your way out of it. 
Two is you pay the loan down. And three is you default, right? You lose the asset. You've, you know, there's a failure of some kind. And so some majority of the market will grow its way out. Some Bell Residential will be fine. Industrial will be fine. Lots of things will be fine. But then some part of the market will not. That Like obviously office buildings, forget growing, like they're collapsing. And the, the thing about over leverage is that everything's over leveraged. So when one thing starts collapsing, it starts pulling down the sort of the next thing, the thing, the next weakest link in the chain, and it cascades through the system. And so that's what's happening, right? I mean, like, like I didn't realize that the um, Trump administration had um, deregulated the banks. What happened was Dodd, Dodd Frank used to treat all banks greater than $50 billion as too big to fail. And they were like, or they were called like, um, systemically important banks. So they were really regulated. And then 2018, they rolled that back from, from 50 billion to 250. So banks, a lot of banks then said, great. And they grew from 50 billion to 249 billion, like in the course of like 36 months. And those are the banks that are blowing up. Like why, why Signature, why Silicon Valley Bank, why First Republic? It's, it, they all, um, fall right in that sort of like sweet spot and they're pulling down the next weak players which is probably pack west western alliance and and it's just and then eventually that'll pull down some mortgage rates and just will cascade through the the um system and before we move on james sorry just just to make clear to the audience like you're the the asset classes you've talked about are all commercial is are, are you seeing any risk of some of this stuff in residential as well or are you mostly looking at the commercial asset class like the broad commercial. Yeah. I mean, the commercial asset class is the where the the fundamental assets in decline. You don't have that in residential you or you know, you go outside real estate, like, you know, the private equity market, right? They which is hugely levered, trillions of dollars, right? Most of those businesses, their good businesses just over levered. And but like they're connected to the world that we care about too, and so they if, when they go down, they'll come back and soak up liquidity. What, what happens with even deleveraging is that just from a mathematical point of view, right? If you have a hundred million dollar property, just round numbers, right? And it used to have an eighty million dollar loan, and now it needs a sixty million dollar loan or fifty five million dollar loan. Somebody's got to write a check of twenty twenty five million dollars. Like that check's being written by somebody somewhere. And if it's not being written by you, the borrower, when the bank forecloses on you, the bank's writing that check because the bank is also levered, right? That's the, that's like, like if you take a mortgage rate, like there's Arbor Realty Trust. If you guys know who that is, that's a big mortgage rate. It's, it's just they're only lending multifamily. They foreclosed on four apartment buildings in Houston like a week or two ago, $229 million of foreclosure. And, you know, they are levered, I think I think eight or nine to one. What? Eighty five percent levered. Yeah, they're levered eighty five percent. So their two hundred twenty million dollar loan is actually levered with one hundred ninety five million dollar of borrowing, and they they probably borrowed from like Wells Fargo or somebody like that, right? So they have to when they foreclose on that loan, they have to turn around. Wells Fargo like you have to write a check because there's too much leverage now because that loan is now uh, not performing. So in the sort of the chain of of connected lender to borrower, lender to borrower, like as you delever, like the entire entire system has to delever. And what does delever mean? Someone's writing a check. Where are they getting that check from? They had to sell something, right? They, they don't just have like $25 million lying around. They had to sell stock. 
They had to take their money out of deposits and pay down that loan. So that liquidity is getting soaked up out of the market. The delever means you have to suck up this liquidity. And so that's like inevitably leads to a liquidity crisis. So Ben, like what you're describing seems like a, and a perfectly, it kind of seems like a Ponzi scheme a little bit to me. At some point, like these banks are, they're, they're funding loans, they're reissuing them off. And then it kind of, and, and then they're levering up 85%, which is getting sold on to somebody else who's then levering that up. And like what you keep talking about is that the can has to, it keeps getting kicked down the road and eventually it's going to hit a wall, right? And then I think that's the kind of nature of like a Ponzi scheme is you don't know when that wall is or what's actually going to cause that. But as, as they kick this can down the road, you also mentioned that these, it's going to start having a natural effect downstream, right? It's going to start pulling down other classes, right? And that's where it's really going to get to like us as real estate investors, access to capital, access to debt is essential for growing. It's essential for executing your business plans. Is Do you think that this is going to have some major impacts on us as real estate? Like even this, the small, not the big guys that are out buying all the big, the REITs buying up the defaulted debt, but for like your day-to-day investors, do you see that coming backwards is that there's the banking is going to be a lot more limited. There's going to be a lot less access to capital for us at these smaller banks. And then one other question I had was, is this going to start the domino effect of where we're really going to go down to like 10 to 20 core banks? And are these little banks going to just get wiped out of the market? It's like, cause this could have major impacts if it starts just get, if you start sinking, right. If we start going into that free fall that, that can crush the market. Yeah. So let's do the first question. Cause it does answer some extent the second one. So I would venture to guess that already the fact that you can't, you can't borrow from most banks. That banking lending is is virtually gone. That if you go to a bank today, and you wanted to borrow or five million dollars, they're likely to pretend that they're yes, but it's actually no. Like they're they're going to go because they they just the banks today are defending their own liquidity. They're worried about going out of business. They're not going to extend liquidity to somebody else. They're going to husband it or or really just like hoard it. They're going to hoard liquidity. And so what does like liquidity hoarding look like? Well, definitely not lending. But second, it means that if your loan comes due, you're not getting an extension. They're going to be like, pay me. I need that liquidity. And so I don't think that you can borrow in America today, except for with like one exception. And that is basically if you bring the bank deposits and the, you know just to just to explain how banking works right if you give a bank 10 million dollars in deposits they lever it 10 times so they can lend your money back to you that's all that's what they're doing that's why they want deposits so they and now they want more deposits so they can kind of like hoard liquidity so if you give them 20 million dollars deposits they'll lend you you know five times that so they can get sort of uh, extra liquidity so that's 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 the only place where you can get borrowing, and then the cost of borrowing those can be very expensive. Probably going to be at least three hundred bips over over SOFR because their their cost of borrowing, bank's cost of borrowing, is gone up. You know, if they're borrowing at four and a half percent for deposits, and they have the cost of running the bank, they gotta they gotta basically lend at seven percent or eight percent. Yeah. And that's a, an interesting point. And that, that's something that, you know, I know myself and other investors have been doing is, you know, you, you, we're actually out interviewing banks right now 
Because as capital is locking up, we're either A, the, the banks that we have existing relationships with, we're transferring more funds to them because they're actually loosening up their guidelines, not loosening up their guidelines, but they're definitely giving us access to capital. But that's kind of what you have to do as an investor right now. You got to go, okay, what? how much liquidity do I have? I need to go shop this around and see who's going to give me the most benefit. And it really does work. Like I know I have another meeting with a private wealth company because they're like, hey, if you bring us in your deposits, they're actually giving you more lending power too. And it's like essential for executing nowadays. It's like, you know, the investors that have hoarded liquidity can actually shop their liquidity to the banks that need it really bad that also want to hoard liquidity. So it's like we're all in this kind of weird cycle. Oh, let me just let me make one comment about that, though, because that's definitely, you know, we're doing that, you're doing that. But the, but if you think about that systemically, anytime you move deposits, you took it from somewhere else, right? There's no additional new new liquidity. So you're, you're moving it around and that's causing basically the bank's cost of doing business to go up because you're basically able to negotiate like good returns for your deposits, not just your deposit rate, but also like, you know, lending or other strategic assets you can get from the bank. And so it just, it, so even though you're like, that's a opportunity, it's also a, like a, a sign because that's not sustainable, right? You can't keep doing that and not end up with like uh, banks, more banks failing. Given the situation, Ben, I'm curious how you would evaluate the Fed's policy right now and whether or not they're taking an appropriate action. Because it seems like a lot of this situation is brought on by super high interest rates. And even despite, you know, the existing collapses, they've raised rates, they said they might pause. But I'm curious, like, would lowering rates uh, help us avoid this situation? Or is this sort of now all in motion, no matter what happens? It's hard to criticize the Fed. They just, they have a much different pers- perspective than I do, right? They ha- they care about inflation. They have political mandates. So at this point, it's it's always hard with, anytime anybody criticizes the Fed, you can always look at an earlier Fed decision and blame them. So, <laughs> so you can go all the way back to like the failure of continental Illinois in like 1980, whenever it was five. So it's like they, they, they had to like eat the spider to catch the fly. And so now they're like, have to kill conflation, which they basically created by, by the pandemic, you know, policy. And then from this, this they'll create sort of the next problem. So if the priority is to, to eliminate inflation, which is their stated mandate, they've been clear that they're willing to basically um, let there be some pain in the economy in order to eliminate it. Mm-hmm. And and the funny thing about the Fed, and this is also true like with like China's Chinese policy and, and Putin, like they, they, they're pretty clear. And I think people just don't believe them. So the Fed's like saying they're not going to drop rates till the end of the end of this year or until they see like really clear data that, that inflation has come down to closer to 2%. We're a long way from that. And so we're basically, we're going to suffer through the next seven months as we wait for the Fed essentially to have like the, you know, line of sight to, um, you know, the next paradigm, which is a lower inflation environment. Yeah. Well, the the reason I brought up that question is because you were like, there's no new liquidity, which is true, except if the Fed introduces new liquidity, because they can do that. But given their like you said, their stated focus of controlling inflation, they probably don't want to do that. I think it's super unlikely, not only because of the Fed, 
but also because of the politics. I don't think that there's any political will in the country for the Fed to print more money and buy more assets. I think that's is not likely. I mean, on the far left or on the right, no one wants the Fed printing more money to add liquidity into the system. But what happens if there's more banks that start failing? And, you know, because they obviously backstopped all the deposits. I mean, so let's say that gets a little bit out of control. Is that going to require for them to break from that policy? Because it seemed like they jumped in fairly, fairly quickly when Silicon Valley Bank crumbled. Yeah, I give you sort of my like operating scenario for how I like how I my my baseline map of how I think it plays out, and then I sort of reevaluate it when I get new data. Just because I feel like that's it's it's hard to answer a specific question without giving you sort of the whole kind of the whole way I think about it. Because inside of that specific answer to your question is the Fed what will do sort of like balance sheet neutral activity like they did with Silicon Valley Bank, which is they sort of didn't they did it. they guaranteed the deposits or FDIC did, and then they created this sort of bank term loan funding program where they basically, you could you could give them a, a treasury and they would give you back 100% of the money, but you didn't sell it to them. <laughs> Just 100% loan. Um, so it, it, I think they'll do lots of activity with their balance sheet, but I don't think they'll, I don't think they'll print money and I don't think they'll lower rates. Um, until there's like really, really like inflation is dead and buried. And that's because of the history of inflation. If you go back to Arthur Burns and Paul Volcker, in both cases, both and Volcker too, most people don't know this. They both, Volcker killed inflation in March, 1980. It was dead. There was a recession. GDP went down on an annualized basis in Q2 of 1980 by 15%. And so he reversed his policy and dropped rates and injected liquidity into the system. And then by Q3, inflation came, rose from the dead and came back at double-digit 12% rates. And he was, he was shocked. He was shocked. There's a book on this called uh, uh, The Secrets of the Temple. Well, anyways, the point is that like, then he basically like went at it hard and created this massive recession in 1981. And and so everybody at the Fed knows about the sort of the, the sort of zombie power of the inflation. It seems it's able to rise from the dead despite you thinking it's actually buried. And so that's why they're likely to sort of go longer and harder at it than everybody who's like not an inflation expert. Like it'll be unintuitive to us. And we'll be like, what are we talking about? Like we're economy in a recession, the stock market's collapsing, everything's going bad. Why why don't you drop rates? And the Fed's like, well, we 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 know that. Arthur Burns and Paul Volcker made that mistake. We don't want to make the mistake. So they're going to wait longer than what seems intuitive to us, which is not going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I was going to say, unfortunately, that seems right. But I guess, wow, I didn't realize that. I didn't have 15% annualized decline. <laughs> it's pretty In intense. Quarter. Like, yeah. You could see why they reverse course. I mean, it's probably the natural thing to do. Uh, but geez, that, that's pretty pretty crazy so um that's you know a a very helpful and well-informed opinion it's grim so how are you how are you adjusting your strategy and thinking about you know you you manage a very large uh real estate investing company like how how are you guys proceeding with this uh thesis in mind 
I believe that it, you know, it all sort of breaks loose sometime this fall, September, October. Um, I think that the um, debt ceiling crisis is the catalyst. Uh, not that the government's going to default, although there's small possibility of that. I think it's that it shuts down, shuts down government, shuts down spending, cuts budgets, and that combined with great deal leveraging, combined with bank failures, combined with everything else we, we living, we're living with today will will drive us into recession. And I, the chance that the Republicans and Democrats agree to a budget without a government shutdown, without drama, seems remote. And so I believe that that shutdown and that sort of like period of uncertainty, which by the way, is like, it's not a first time in history that you can just go look at 1994, 2011, where you had a Democrat in the White House and a Republican, Republicans in Congress. And in, in both instances, there was government shutdowns, a lot of drama, stock market fell 20%, spreads doubled. So imagine if today spreads doubled from where they are today. 600? <laughs> yeah. And it's it's not even that they're not going to resolve it. It's just that level of uncertainty and and chaos will will drive more institutions sort of off the edge. And so sometime I think it comes to a head in, in this, this fall. And then what I w- would plan to do is buy like crazy. And I've been, we just, we've been trying to sit on as much cash and hold back and have reserves. And, you know, I've been, I've been like pretty negative for the last like couple of years, even in 2021, I was like this like curmudgeon and like, I want to tell everybody, I'm like, just buy. Cause what's going to happen, I believe is that not only will there be everything that's like all this pain, but you can see the other side of it in 2024. You can see the fed dropping. You can see like the thing about a crisis is that they feel like they're, once you get in a real crisis, it feels like it's going to be like that way forever. Like it's in 2008, people thought it was the end of American capitalism, end of banking systems. So we'll have some period of like real fear. I know we're real estate investors, but I'm mean like buy liquid, buy liquid stuff, whether that's like an asset back security or that's like the Vanguard read index. Like it's, that'll move 20% in like 60 days, 90 days. And in the meantime, you'll try to buy one property and it won't even trade. So it's like, um, the paper markets, I mean, especially aspect securities, which is probably far from most people's area, but it's, that's happened. This happened every time in my career is that buildings won't trade, but the paper underneath of it will. Like you can go out and buy a lot of multifamily paper at like what would be like 35% LTV at like a six, 7% interest rate. You couldn't buy that at a six or 7% cap rate. And you can be, <laughs> you can be $80 a square foot basis. I mean, like way, way, way deep into the, into the, in a portfolio of $500 million multifamily. And you, I mean, just the paper markets will just absolutely collapse because what's happening with paper markets like this, you've just to go back to the great deleveraging and the chain of, of borrowing, the borrower borrowed $80, $80 million from, from like Arbor, Arbor turned around, securitized that. And they borrowed $65 million from the market. And that $65 million, who bought that? Who who, know, who bought the AAA and the AA and the, and the A? Banks. And so banks are going to be dumping all their liquidity. They have to dump that paper so they so they can like not go out of business. And so the forced seller in the market is like the, 
is the bank. So you're saying that these banks are going to write the notes down. You, you're, I mean, up to where you could be buying them almost 35 cents on the dollar. Well, a little more complicated than that. But yeah, so right now banks are selling their performing loans. They told me they were going to do this. And I was like, that's how can you do that? But like, um, it was, it was in the news today, Bloomberg. I mean, I, like, I knew this was coming, but I, I was just, I was just, I thought it was, you know, banks selling performing loans. So they, so PacWest sold two point six billion dollars in construction loans for two point four billion, so ninety two cents on the dollar to um, Kennedy Wilson, which is a private equity fund complex. So there's an on average eight eight percent, eight point four percent, you know, interest rate on those construction loans because with because the construction loans have another two and a half billion of of draws. PacWest didn't have the money to fund the draws, so they had to sell the sell the loans. Mm-hmm. So they're selling performing loans at 92 cents in the dollar. That seems like I don't believe those numbers. I don't believe that's actually what happened. And that it was probably a structured transaction so that PacWest could tell everybody that it was 92 cents on the dollar. But there's no way I believe private equity fund bought it for 92 cents on the dollar. But anyways, like uh, no, the paper they'll sell, it's the um, securitized bonds underneath of the buildings, not the actual. The real estate investor is obsessed with trying to get a hold of the building. Like, don't worry about the building. Just focus on getting the returns. And you get that by buying essentially the securitized bonds. Ben, if, you know, for most of our audience who are smaller and probably don't have access to that type of, uh, I don't know, maybe just aren't used to buying paper and that kind of stuff. Like, are there any, if they do want to buy the buildings, like, are there any specific, um, you know, property types within commercial that you think are going to do well? Like you said, Office is getting crushed. Would you still buy office in a couple of months or are you? No, I'd never buy office. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) What you can do, you can go to the bank and like, and say like, okay, you can pick, you can pick like, if you're an inside like player, you know, the market, you know, like, you know, I don't know, make up some place like James, I'm going to pick on you here. But let's say I'm like, I bet you James overextended. James probably. You know, he, you know he's, he's he's doing okay, but like if his loans come due, he's gonna want an extension. And I go to the bank and say, "Hey, bank, you know James is not doing that great. Why don't you sell me that loan? <laughs> why don't you sell?" And P- Pack West just fell over ninety two cents on the dollar. Why don't you just sell me your loan for ninety two cents on the dollar? You need liquidity. Maybe I'll pay hundred cents on the dollar. Maybe I'll just pay. I'll just buy James's loan. And now, and the bank's like, "Oh, great! I need liquidity, and you're willing to literally take." James's loan, like his, I'm going to make up a number, $10 million loan on his $15 million property. You'll buy it for me at, 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 uh, at, you know, a good price. So they just got liquidity. Like it's, it's like getting deposits, right? They just literally took something that was an illiquid asset worth millions of dollars in the balance sheet. They got liquid and now I'm James's lender. And then James shows up. He's like, I need an extension. I can't refinance today. And I'm like, sorry, James, I'm going to foreclose on you if you don't pay me off. And James is going to have a hard time finding a refinanced property. You're going to end up owning James's apartment building for six, 65, 70 cents on the dollar because the bank basically sold you the loan. There's going to be some sharks swimming in the debt market. Yeah. That, that, was, that was happening a lot in 2008 and 9. People are coming in the back door, buying debt, foreclosing it out. Well, I, w- I remember seeing that quite a bit. Yeah. It's, it's not something I'd want to do. Um, cause it's, it's, but if you're like going to buy one or two properties in this cycle, a great way to do it is to get that, get a hold of that loan. Cause you know, what your, what's your worst case scenario? James pays you off. Yeah. Right. 
probably he 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 like had some default interest and and like maybe the bank sells it for 90 cent, 98 cents on the dollar or 95 cents on the dollar like you know and, and if it's a floating rate loan you're probably getting a good yield on that are you getting seven eight percent on a floating rate loan today with the option to potentially own it for 65 cents on the dollar pretty good one of the best deals I ever did was buying a note for three days and then foreclosing it. <laughs> and, and the bank, like Ben said, they wanted to dump the note. We bought it for like 20 cents on the dollar. And then we sold it at the auction for 60 cents on the dollar. It was crazy. And I was like, I was like, wow, this was easy. We didn't have to fix it. We didn't have to lease it. It was done. Yeah. Paper. So this people, you can give Wall Street a lot of grief. But man, it's so much easier dealing with paper than with property. So I, have a, I went to dinner last week with a, a big bank. Uh, it's I was, it's one of the biggest regional banks. Some people might call them a super regional. They, they, we went to dinner because we had a lot of deposits with them and they wanted to just like press the flesh and they wanted more deposits from us. And I, so we had a long dinner and I'm just asking them lots of questions. One of the things I asked them is I, I say, I heard about banks who are needing to sell performing loans. You know, what, isn't that, isn't that a sign of like real weakness? Like, I, you sell non-performing loans, but to sell a performing loan means your your liquidity crisis of the bank, and the liquidity crisis means the bank's in trouble. And they say, no, 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 not at all. That's just, it's just, lots of banks are doing it. We're we're even going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean it's not bad. Uh huh. Oh, okay. And how how are you going to decide what loans to sell and like what price are you going to sell them for? Like, well, we'll just sell the ones we don't have like a deep relationship with, i.e., no deposits. And, and they called them the ankle biters. We'll just sell the ankle biters. I was like, okay. They're like, yeah, we bought, you know, we bought a lot of banks over the last few years. And, you know, those banks have a lot of, you know, loans that we, we inherited and relationships we don't, we inherited. And so, you know, we, we'll just sell those ones. And like, what price do you think you're going to get? Like, well, PacWest is about to set the market. So we'll find out. So today came out 92 cents on the dollar, which by the way, I do not believe there's no way. There's some there's some hidden structure in that that's giving them a headline number because PacWest or any bank today is obsessed with having headline numbers that support the bank's narrative that they're liquid and healthy. So there's probably hidden structure in that deal. But anyways, the point is like banks are banks are sellers. Probably every bank you could you could go to them and buy loans from them, and the, probably the structure is. Um, Either seller financing or maybe some take back risk. They'll that you can push back some of the risk or some. There's 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 um, a deal to be had, and then the problem is the banks will get be inundated. So it's like uh, having a bank relationship where you have deposits. You show up with deposits and say, by the way, like you put me at the top of your list when you're selling non-performing assets in Seattle. They're like, sure, of course we will. That sounds great. You're we have a relationship with you, which means deposits. So there's, yeah, it's a, it's a very, I mean, rich opportunity for investors with liquidity. All right. Well, that's, that's great advice. I mean, I, I think for everyone who is listening to this, um, if you don't know how to do this, there are funds, obviously, I assume Fundrise also does this, but there are ways to, to get into this. Um, if you aren't familiar with how to do this yourself, or, or do you know, like, is this something that like a normal real estate investor bank could feasibly do on their own? So yeah, we we have a debt fund and we're out there lending people who need capital to basically like um, 
pay down their loans, right? But most real estate, this is true of almost all professions. Most people are focused on the thing that they know how to do. So they might be a flipper and they want to flip and that's what they're all they're focused on. Or they're an office. I know lots of office developers and they just, they just wanted to do office and they would buy office buildings. And, and even when it was clear that work from home was, was going to really be a problem for them. And so right now is not the time to buy properties. It's the time to, to be in the lending business or, or, focused on the on credit on finance that's where the opportunity is whether you're in paper or you're in banks or you're going to just be a bridge lender and so trying to buy right now it's it's premature it's just it's not a buying environment you you can buy maybe later this year or next year anybody who has a problem f- first thing's not going to deal with it they're going to basically hope it goes away hope the fed drops rates and then they're only going to deal with it when it's a serious problem, and the first thing they're going to do is see if they can borrow money. So if you're going to lend money, then you can lend it to them, and that's a, you can get, you know, probably a fifteen percent return or some really high yield. And then after they can no longer borrow money, then they're going to sell the building, and that's you know at least probably six months away. So that's why you see like September, October, like this, all these to basically play out. Well, first there's like going to be the macro crisis, and then borrowers were going to be stuck with. There'll be no money. Like this is hard. Like they'll go through a period with no money anywhere. Already, there's so little money in the market. It's and the institutional market. There's no money in the institutional market either. Don't don't read. Don't believe the headlines. They're they're really distressed. Starwood Property Trust, like as an example, close to the edge, really close to the edge. They're levered here. You can go look at this. They're levered fifteen to one. Wow. And they have a $70 billion asset base. So do you think that asset base is going to have any losses? You know, as an office, they have 30% of the portfolio in office. They're typically in 80%. So like, so they're just like praying, right? That it doesn't come, doesn't hit them. That's a good, a good example of like, maybe they survive, but that's like, they're it's a razor thin margin. Six, they have 6%. That's equivalent to 93.3% leverage. So they have 6.6% equity on a 70 billion dollar base and that's like that's starwood right that's a that's not like a you know one saying like that's a weak unsophisticated player all right well we do have to uh wrap this up ben this is a a really uh helpful (laughs) analysis from you thank you and i think uh it's a good warning for anyone who's in the commercial space to be wary um of buying right now but as ben said there's still good opportunities um, if you can get into lending and if not, sounds like your advice would be to wait a couple of, you know, till at least Q4 ish, um, to start considering buying anything. Um, Ben, is there anything else you think our audience should know before we let you get out of here? I mean, it's my father used to say, you know, it's a top when everybody thinks will never be a bottom again. <laughs> so, you know, it's a bottom when people think it'll never, there'll never be a top again. So like, is a cycle. We're going to go into the down part of the cycle. People will lose their heads. And like, that's the opportunity. Like that, and that only happens like, it only happened like half a, half a dozen times in your life. So keeping that perspective ahead of time, obviously when things were hot was to, and then when things get cold and, and that's, uh, and if, you know, and I, I, if things were really bad, I had one of my best friends went bankrupt in 08, like he's fine now. Yeah. He's fine. I mean, it's totally. So it's just like, not to let the the doom and gloom overwhelm your your perspective. That's a great way to go out because, like, even though your 
short-term analysis is is grim like you're you're it's good to know that your long-term analysis is still is still positive 24 i think 20 i think we're gonna have a roaring roaring comeback i think it's going to be incredible but it's not going to be till it's not going to be this year (laughs) all right well ben uh obviously people can find you at fundrise or is there anywhere else that they should look for you if they want to learn more about you yeah i have a podcast also called onward which is uh podcasting so fun and uh so if you want to hear like a little bit more in the in the weeds on this type of stuff i love getting into it it's a great podcast awesome great james was i know james was listening to it today yeah uh all right well ben thank you so much Uh, we appreciate you being here it's always fun to have you on and hopefully we'll see you again soon yeah thanks a lot guys man i love when someone gives us a specific timeline where they think things are going to happen where it's just like september october things are going to go to and that's when you should start buying so should we have him back in September, October? <laughs> I definitely think we should have him back, which, you know, that's coming off the seasonal month. You might, we might see that. Who knows? I'm hoping that something happens. Honestly, yeah. I mean, I, I think hopefully it's not just like this huge thing that cascades throughout the whole economy, but I think there is a sense that there's uh, valuations are still too high and things do need to come down. So I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Well, I'm, I'll be on pins and needles. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm so burnt out of waiting for the shoe to drop. So let's get the shoe dropped and let's get moved on. I totally agree. It's like, let's just get, if it's going to happen, let's just get it over with and and maybe it will. Um, So anyway, thanks again to Ben. It's always fun having him on. If you haven't listened to his previous episodes, I think there's one back in in January. It's called The Great Deal Leveraging, where he goes into sort of the the risks here in a more technical way. You should definitely check that out. Um, But we'll definitely have him back on again in the future. James, thanks as always for being here and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time for On The Market. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On The Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. 
Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.